0: Welcome to the Institute of Men podcast, where we are figuring out what kind of men we want to be and pursuing that vision relentlessly for the rest of our lives. My name is Keaton Tucker, and I want to thank you for listening. Today, we are talking about Christian leadership and the importance of being a disciple. Then we will go into our comments section, and we'll be finishing with today's gospel coming from Luke chapter 9. New to the podcast, or you just haven't hit that subscribe button? Go ahead and do that now. And if you would be so kind as to leave a five-star review, I do ask that you consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Thank you for listening and supporting the Institute of Men. All right, here we go. I hope you are doing well today, wherever you're listening from, and at whatever time. I know not everybody listens to this the first week or month that these comes out. This podcast was originally formulated in my mind based on a question my pops asked me when I was 23 years old. He asked me, son, what kind of man do you want to be? And that question helped me and it's a a lot when I was 23 and 25 and 27 and even today at the age that I am now, which I'm not going to say because I'm now, well, I'll say it. I'm now 32 and it feels like I just hit the adolescence of being an adult because you're, you know what I mean? Like I'm 12 years old in adult years. You become an adult, not at 18, but at 20. And now I am 12 years old in adult years. So I'm an adolescent of the adult. That question helped me, and now I want to pass that along to you. The same question on this podcast, what kind of man do you want to be? Since he has asked me that question, one of the things that I have learned to become a great man is we must have other great men to imitate, to become like. We I've learned that we don't exist in a vacuum, and if we don't have somebody to imitate, then we're going to have a hard time figuring out what kind of man we want to become. We need, you and I both, we need great men to copy we also know that we need like, we need to belong to our heritage. We need to understand our heritage or our history. Stephen Mansfield writes about this in his book, Men on Fire. I really like Stephen Mansfield. He actually wrote a, a book. It's a yellow book called Stephen Mansfield's Book of Manly Men, uber cheesy title. But I bought that when I was 24, and it's a multi-part biography of several men. I think there's 20 men in there that he pulls characteristics out of. Highly recommend that book. It's got manly poetry, and he wrote another book, Men on Fire, and I really like what Stephen Mansfield, the work that he does. We also went to the same college, by the way, which is pretty cool. But in that book, he says, every man needs to know where he came from. Like, every single man, whether you have a good upbringing or a bad upbringing, your history beyond just your mother and father, but in in, even in your grandparents and your grandparents' grandparents, if you can find that information. But not only that, we as Christians, we have an awesome heritage. You share in a great cloud of witnesses, a, a long-standing line of Christians who have come before you, who have built the world that you and I live in. And I think it's good to know that heritage even more than you might understand the heritage of your, your close-knit family. Especially, you know, it might be a little bit harder to get your grandparents and your grandparents' grandparents, but have, we have writings from the greatest Christians who have lived over the last 2,000 years, and we have that history, and we can study it, and we can imitate these people. I didn't mention this in the intro, but on my website, instituteofmen.org, I am running I run a newsletter from that website and one of the things that I'm doing on that website is searching out the heritage of Christianity specifically in America and once I'm done there I'll probably go into all of Christian history but I'm I'm because I'm doing the same thing you guys are doing I want to understand and I don't currently understand my heritage as an American Christian, as somebody who grew up in the United States of America with a Christian heritage, I don't understand it. And so I'm doing a deep dive, trying to understand why it is the way that it is, Wh- who came before us, who set up things up and what was good and what was bad. And I'm um, doing all that. So you can go over to institute there. You can sign up for the newsletter. You can also support the work that I do on the podcast and in the newsletter and other areas on that platform. By supporting the work, you are helping me do this podcast, do the newsletter. I really do appreciate it. It's a small subscription. If you want to do it, you can also choose the free one. That's up to you. But I do appreciate any financial support that happens, and it all happens at instituteofmen.org. I'll make sure I put a link below. Today, we're going to be talking about leadership. Specifically, I want to talk... Well, I'll I'll get to that. There's many forms of leadership. There's business leadership, military leadership. There's family leadership, church leadership. There's many forms of leadership. And a lot of money and a lot of study has gone into what exactly leadership is. If you were to go to the business section at a Barnes & Noble, what you would mostly find are leadership books. That's primarily what is over there in that section. You'll find some on finance and accounting, but most of them are on leadership. And universities have put tons and tons of money into studying leadership because it's the characteristic that we know people need to have to influence others, but it's also really difficult to describe. I I think one of the reasons that it's so hard to describe is because there's many distinct characteristics and each form of leadership has its own purpose. If you try to lead your family the way a military leader leads the military or the army. You're gonna have a hard time. Your kids are not. Your kids are gonna end up like those kids in the '60s if you try to lead your family like, like a, it's a military academy. They're very different. They have different purposes, and each area has a leadership. Every leadership thing has different. Sorry, that made me laugh. And now I'm all I'm all I'm all caught. I think one of the greatest leaders of all time. His name is Ernest Shackleton. He is. I only know about this guy because my father was obsessed with Ernest Shackleton. And I read a book once by him called Endurance. Me and Pops actually did an episode on it, cause, and it was a fascinating book. He led men to their survival after trying to make it to Antarctica during the early 1900s. World War I was happening at the time. They go down to Antarctica. Their ship gets stuck in the ice. It gets crushed, and they have to survive, and they carry these boats. And for a, I think it's like 13 months, they're down in the ice trying to get back to land, and Ernest Shackleton is in charge of leading these men to their very survival. And he does it. And there's epic stories in here where he um, gets on the front of the boat to row by himself, and he's got ice hanging from his beard. And it's a very inspiring story. And he led all of his men back to safety after I think it was 13 months. Not one of them passed. And I think he's one of the greatest leaders of all time. He was never in politics. He was never in any of that. He was just a good leader, and people wrote about him, and it's the only reason we know about him. And I do remember there was one time I was sitting on the couch with my dad, we were doing a man bible study when i was 23 years old um, and we were talking and i was talking like uh, about second peter chapter 1 that there has to be more to faith and he he then just simple go to church kind of stuff and I, this is early in my in like i mean i'm 23 years old and I'm, as i'm trying to f- learn the fullness of the faith and i'm just i've been reading the scripture i'm like there's got to be more than just what i'm hearing and he points me to f- Second Peter chapter one, he and he reads it, supplement your faith with knowledge and knowledge with virtue and excellence and all these things. And brotherly love and with affection. But then he, he said this line that he's, he's he tells me about Shackleton. This is the first time I remember him telling me about Shackleton. I'm sure there were other times as a leader, but he's he tells me about Shackleton and he says, There has to be more to the faith because people's lives are at stake. And he tells me about Shackleton, and he says, Shackleton lived as if people's life was on the was on. Like on his shoulders, he lived as if people were going to die, and you and I need to learn to live the exact same way. We need to learn to lead as if people's life is on the very line. Um, and I think that begs the question: Okay, so if we're going to lead, if we're going to be Christian leaders, hopefully that we're not a. Hopefully that's not an adjective. Hopefully it's not you're a Christian who happens to be a leader who's leading it. I mean, if you're a Christian, you're leading like in government or whatever in business. Yes, absolutely. that's not what, not what I mean. What I think I want, I'm trying to say is if we're going to be people who lead others, I want to ask where are we leading them to? Where should we be leading to? Where, what's the end goal? Have we considered the end goal? Because there's military leadership that has an end goal. There's business leadership that has an end goal. Does Christian leadership have an end goal? And I think it does. And I think it actually is not for you and I to decide. I actually believe that Jesus gave a mandate for what his people were to do and that we are supposed to follow it and not create our own thing of, I I really believe that. I believe we're not supposed to just create our own thing, but we're supposed to, our own form of leadership, but we're supposed to do exactly what Jesus said. He said, if you are going to lead, lead this way. And so I want to offer you a verse and then we're going to come back to it. We're going to look at some other verses in Luke six, uh, 40, Jesus, he's given a long sermon and he says this, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained will be like his teacher, which we're going to come back to that. I want to read it one more time. A disciple is not above his teacher. The teacher remains above the disciple forever, but everyone, when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. Okay, So hold on to that verse, and then we're going to just, let's talk about Jesus real quick. So before his ascension back to heaven, Jesus was granted all authority in heaven and on earth, like all of it. He has all the authority. Whatever he says goes at this, it's like he has, there is no arguing with Jesus at this point, whatever he says goes. And with all of that authority, he gave a mandate to his disciples that still applies to every single one of us today. Now, if you were given all authority on heaven and on earth, and every single person in history was now subject to, do, to you, what would you do? What would you do with all of that authority? What would be your first command? Would you change the government? Would you get rid of central banks? Would you remove warlords and mafias and drug trafficking and human trafficking? Would you end poverty? I have a list of things that I would do. Like, first thing, this is just gone. But that's not what Jesus mandated. Jesus mandated something completely different. He mandated, go and make disciples. And you might wonder, like, okay, if Jesus had the opportunity to get rid of human trafficking based on that, on a single command, why didn't he do that? And I think it's because he knows the human heart is inclined towards evil always, and without a change in the human heart, without a change that is drastic, that leads to behavior, that leads to a whole renewal of the mind, human beings would go right back to purveying that kind of evil. That's the story of the flood. You can't just wipe it out. There has to be a change of the human heart. So post-resurrection, Jesus is very, very busy. He's He's on the earth 40 days after his resurrection, and he gets to work because he's got a short amount of time to get a lot of stuff done. He appears to all of the Marys, which I think is hilarious. There's four Marys in the Gospels. There's so many, it had to have been like the, uh, what's a popular name? It had to have been like the Brads of the early 2000s. There were just tons of Brads everywhere in the early 2000s. And there's, in the biblical era, there must have been just a bunch of Marys. There's four in the Gospels. There's so many Marys that one is just called the other Mary which I think is hilarious. There's Mary, Mary Magdalene, there's my mama Mary, and then there's the other Mary. Jesus appears to all the Marys, and then he goes to Peter, and then to the 500 others. Uh, He tells his disciples to proclaim the gospel in Mark for repentance and forgiveness of sins. He restores Peter in John 21. He instructs them on the kingdom of God, according to Acts chapter one. He opens their mind to understand the scriptures. That's in uh, Luke 24. He spent three years making them his disciples, and then in 40 days he put a capstone on it. He's like, you got three years, all right, now it's time to go. It was a very important and very f- revealing 40 days of time, and it was during that time he goes up to the mountain to ascend back to heaven, and he sums up the three years and the 40 days in one command. It's a summary. It encompasses all that he had taught in the three years and in the 40 days. You have to remember that. You can't boil it down to this is all we have to do nothing else matters. No, no, no. That is the summary of the 3 years and the 40 days post-resurrection. Go, and this was his command. Go and make disciples. Authority, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me; therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to do all that I have commanded you. This is the final mandate. It's the great it's known as the great commission because it it summarizes everything that Jesus wanted to do from the time he was alive to his death, to his resurrection and post resurrection at the inauguration of the kingdom of God. All of that is summarized in go and make disciples. We are commanded today to become disciples and to make disciples. Now go back to that first. I'm going to pull that verse back just real quick from Luke 640. A disciple is not above his teacher, But when he is fully trained, he will be like his teacher. So remember, he will be like his teacher. And I want to ask an important question. Do you hear that train? I don't know if you could hear that train. I'm going to leave it in. There's a train right next to me where I record these things. I want to ask a question to make sure that we're all on the exact same page. What is a disciple? It's a word that we all use frequently we kind of know well maybe not all of us maybe most of us don't even use the word disciple anymore maybe we just think disciple is synonymous with christian or synonymous with convert um and i don't think it's necessarily synonymous i think that you could i think you could be a christian and, re- and never become a disciple of jesus um, or you can never maybe not even become a close-knit disciple of Jesus um, but you're still a Christian you still have all the fullness of the belief you still believe that he's Lord but you never learn from him. I think that's very possible. I think we'd be missing out but the word disciple is not I don't I think is different than Christian Christian because Christian means a little well maybe now that I'm thinking about it. no you need to be a disciple you you're either a disciple or you're not. there are plenty of Christians in the world today who are Christians, they believe but they have yet to become disciples. The, and that's what, you know, we're all, we're on a journey. We're on a journey. And this is a great time to become a disciple. The most literal translation of the Greek word disciple is apprentice or the next most literal word is student. So being a disciple is being an apprentice or it's being a student of a teacher. It's learning the way of the teacher and becoming like the teacher. A disciple is, remember that verse, a disciple is not above his teacher, but when he is fully trained, he will be like his teacher. Being a disciple is learning to become like the teacher. It's believing what the teacher believes and doing what the teacher does. To use modern vernacular, it's participating in a training program. Jesus in Luke 640, when he says, when you are fully trained, he's telling people that I'm putting you on a training program to become like me. Like me, that's what he wants. He wants people, a disciple is somebody who is trying to imitate Christ. They're trying to be like Christ. They're trying to believe what Jesus believed, do what Jesus did, live their way in such a way that their life resembles Jesus. And Jesus intends to put us all on a training program if we would let him, that transform uh, that makes us like him in word, in deed, in action, in character, and in belief and this might be the most important part of discipleship today, is becoming to believe what Jesus believed. Today, just like in every other era, this has been true of every other era, people want to take what they already believe, slap Jesus' name on it, and call it Christianity. We are to be conformed to his image, to his likeness. Never once does Jesus respond with with affirmation of somebody's worldview. Never once, not once in the gospel everyone needed either a slight or even a great revision on what they believed. And, you know, people who choose to slap Jesus name on whatever they already believe. A lot of them have, you know, pride flags on their churches or they've come up with their own thing. They've created Christianity in their own image and they have not thought, Hey, you know, maybe Jesus had in mind (laughs) what he wanted when he sent out the apostles. Maybe, maybe he knew exactly what to tell them to do and said, just, do it. Maybe he did that. And then <laughs> I think that's a pretty good case. And we're all just trying to come up with our own thing and rant. Don't, don't get me ranting, but, um, <laughs> but today, just like in every other day, people want to slap Jesus's name on it and call it Christianity. Again, I see this seems to happen all the time with people with pride flags, um, or people who deconstruct their faith. Um, and they end up hardly a Christian at all. And they they try to build something all on doubt. But Jesus constantly challenges people's worldview because he's trying to conform them to his image and make him see the world the way he sees the world, to see righteousness the way he sees righteousness, the kingdom, the way he sees the kingdom, what is good, right, and true is conformed to Jesus. You and I submit our entire life to his authority to become like him. And he's asked us to do that. So, Jesus has told us what our leadership mandate is. He said, what's the end goal? Because remember, in military leadership, there's an end goal. In business leadership, there's an end goal. In family leadership, there's an end goal. So I'm going to submit that in Christian leadership, there's an end goal, and it's to lead people to become like Jesus, which means you and I need to learn to imitate Christ, imitate Jesus, the way Paul did. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 11, chapter 1, or verse, verse 1, excuse me. He says, imitate him as he imitates Christ. So there are people in the world today and throughout history who have done such a great job of imitating Jesus and becoming like him in holiness and in righteousness, not to perfection. No, of course not. But they've done such a great job. They've, they are considered worthy of copying their way of life a lot of them are in are they're in the gospels there's heroes of the faith that you can read about like that you can be like their way of life is worth imitating i want to read you this quote from imitation of christ this is thomas a. Kempis wrote this book a really long time ago actually let me see if the if they have the date thomas a. Kempis lived between 1379 and 1471 so he was really old he was in the netherlands and he wrote a book called The Imitation of Christ. And this book, I asked a, a mentor of mine. His name is Scott. I asked him once. He's a very holy man, very righteous man, very godly man. I really admire him. And I, I asked him one time, what's the best Christian book you've ever read? And without even thinking twice about it, he goes, Imitation of Christ, Thomas a. Kempis I was like, all right. So I went and found myself a copy. And it's not a book you read cover to cover. It's a book, you re- the paragraphs are numbered so that you can read one paragraph at a time because one paragraph at a time is all you need. But at the beginning, the first paragraph in imitation of Christ is this. He who follows me can never walk in darkness, our Lord says. Here are the words of Christ, words of warning. If we want to see our way truly, never a trace of blindness left in our hearts. It is his life, his character that we must take as our model. Clearly, then, we must make it our chief business to train our thoughts upon the life of Jesus Christ. That is a fancy way of saying become like Jesus. Believe what Jesus believed. Do what Jesus did as if he was you. Now, there's like some things that you're like, no, I'm not, I can't do that. Like, Jesus did not live in a home. He traveled from place to place. He, he had a very specific mission. We're talking about his teachings on the Sermon on the Mount in Luke chapter 6. The way he instructed those who would follow him to live. You can look at other parts of his life and copy those. There were times when Jesus would spend nights of prayer. There's times when he would disappear to a lonely place. There's times where he would just be by himself to pray. There was times when he was eating around a table with anybody and everybody. And there was a time when he was eating a table around with just his friends. And there was a time where he was eating around a table with the rich and the powerful. Because Jesus would eat with anybody who would come to him. He never conformed to them, but he would eat with anybody who wanted to come to him. Let me read this one. One more quote from this book: Christ teaching, how it overshadows all the saints have to teach us. Okay, when when Thomas Aquinas writes of the saints, he's talking about the people whose life is worthy of emulating, of imitating. They are people who were great, great followers of Jesus. That you can imitate their way of life and be like that is what a disciple of Jesus is. Because if we're going to be Christian leaders. Hopefully, we are leading people to become like Christ, which means we're leading people to become disciples of Jesus. Just basically, we want to be people who can be imitated. We want to be people who can be imitated. You learn more from imitation than you do from anything else, and that's true of the people who will imitate you. They learn from, You learn from imitation more than you'll learn from books, more than you'll learn from instruction. You learn by copying other people. That's why you're so similar to your parents, by the way. You just imitated them. Most of your life you spent imitating them. Imitation is how children grow into adults and to learn all that adults do. It's how kids learn to talk. Imitation is what apprentices do in the trade. Imitation is what Jesus' disciples did as they followed Jesus. It's the most effective form of leadership that multiplies. The most effective form is to imitate somebody who has been great, mainly Jesus. So Christian leaders are to become people who can be imitated in the way of Jesus. Now, how are we going to do that? How do we make sure that we are becoming imita- worthy of imitation in the way of Jesus? Well, there's some great verses that I want to just point out to you. I don't want to spend too much time on these, but uh, the first one, you definitely want to pray. Jesus prayed all the time. Paul wrote in 1 Timothy chapter 2 that you we should first of all then pray. First of all, before anything else, pray. Um, you can say sh- short prayers are good prayers. Long prayers are good prayers. I have some tips about prayer on my YouTube channel. Pray, 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 pray. The other one is you want to train yourself for godliness. That means putting your body into a disciplinary structure so that you can become like Jesus. Most of your your sin has never been a part of your body, never been separate from your body. You've always used your body to sin you will you will always use your body to do things that are righteous and good and true you will also do your use your body to do things that are not so good you know what i mean okay. so one of the ways you train yourself for godliness is training through your body that's using spiritual disciplines that's using fasting, silence, and solitude, refusing to speak for a time, so that you can learn to control your tongue. It's also celebrating when there's things to be celebrating. If you're just trying to be pious the whole time, but you never celebrate the great things of life, you're <laughs> well. You're going to be kind of a, a dull, and you're going to miss out on Jesus went to weddings. So you want to train yourself um, for godliness. There's a lot of verses in the Bible about training yourself for godliness. First Corinthians nine is another one, and then you also. Once you have done all that, once you've be decided I'm going to become a disciple of Jesus, then you for sure want to then set a public example for others. This is what Paul writes to Timothy. Timothy is the leader at the Church of Ephesus, and he's Paul is giving him instructions on what to do. And it, here's what he says in First Timothy chapter four verses twelve through fifteen. He says, "But set your set the believers an example in speech. And in conduct, in love, in faith, and purity. So set an example in all of those areas. Devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which is given to you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress there is a time to let people see your progress in the Christian life now that's different than practicing your righteousness in order to be seen by others so they can celebrate you like oh look how holy he is and so you know that you know you don't want to receive your reward that's a place of pride you want others to see your your progress so that they can imitate they can look at you and be like I want what I want to fo- I want to follow Jesus the way he is following Jesus he has become more humble more peaceable more kind, more loving, more faithful. He's been able to endure suffering better. I want to be like him in character. I've seen his progress. I want to be like him. That is the end goal of discipleship and Christian leadership. Today's comment comes courtesy of a wonderful gentleman. I'm assuming it's a wonderful gentleman based on his YouTube profile. I posted a clip that. That encouraged men to become a defender of what is good, right, and true. Take, the comment is so that's the clip. Become a you're a man, become a defender of what's good, right, and true. The comment is just a question women can't defend what is good, right, and true. Just a question. Someone who is a woman responded to that comment and said, When did he say that? Which is a fair response. When did I say? Women can't be defenders of what is good, right, and true. I did not say that. I'm encouraging men because my audience is 95% men under 35. When did he say that? And then the guy, think about this. Think about it. The guy responds to the woman, you're not too bright. <laughs> what? Why can't women be defenders of good, right, and true? A woman comes and defends what I have said. And he says, you're not smart. You're an idiot. Like, what, you hypocrite? What kind of world do we live in where people just say stuff like that? You're like, oh, I'm going to stand up for women. But if a woman disagrees with me, you know what? I'm actually going to insult her. Like, what? Wow. That kind of comment, by the way, is called baiting they they say something that they, they're trying to get you to refute it. Because if you try to refute it by using their language, you're admitting to, you're like admitting guilt almost. It's, it's a really conniving little thing that people do. So he says, women can't support what is good, right, and true. I say, yes, they can. He'd be like, well, then why didn't you say that? Why are you misogynistic? And be like, what the heck? Then I'm now I'm on the lifeline. And then what, what else am I supposed to say? Uh, The best thing to do is say nothing. People who use baiting questions, which they do all the time. I mean, you're on social media, you're on the internet, so you know that people do this all the time. They ask leading questions, they ask baiting questions, trying to trap you in your words. And the best thing that you can do when someone tries to trap you in your words is either ignore it, call it out by saying something like, you sound like you have an answer that that I'm not going to give to you. I've said that to people. People have put me in a situation where they've tried to bait me into an answer, and I've said, I'm not going to give you the answer that you want me to. Or you can say something like, I will not be manipulated by that question. Call it, Literally, just call it out. If they're going to try to manipulate you with a baiting question, call it out. Or you can just ignore it. One other thing that I like to do, <laughs> and this is if I'm feeling a little, uh, little spicy, you can just laugh and say, nice try. To ask you a baiting question, <laughs> nice, nice try. Not going to give you that one. Or you can say, uh, "Where did I have it written down?" You can sometimes you can. I've said this before. I do not accept your presupposition. Just throw in a big word, and people who try to bait you usually it gets them confused, and they have no idea how to respond. <laughs> it's quite funny to me, but don't fall for baiting questions. Just ignore them. That way you can just move on with your life and you don't end up in a YouTube comment fight. Today's gospel comes from Luke chapter 9, 23 and 24. We are going to look at a few other verses around this same story, same theme from the other gospels. And we're going to look at a quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And then I've got a quote from you from the imitation of Christ as well. This is what it says in Luke chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. And he said to all, All people, if any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. So taking up your cross is a daily thing. It's You die to yourself daily. And I want to talk specifically about that when it comes to words, denying yourself when it comes to words. This is going to be the context that a lot of a lot of times where you and I have to deny ourselves because people people say things that that are hurtful. Words hurt your ego because they're true. <laughs> so there's that portion, right? Somebody could say something to you that is true and it hurts because it hurts your ego but you need to hear it. <laughs> Just because something hurts your ego doesn't mean you don't need to hear it or it's not good for you. There's the reproof of a, is better than hidden love. Proof wounds from a friend are better. There are times when you, you you need to hear that, but there's also times when people say stuff about you that is not true. It gets spouted as if it was true, and that hurts the most. That cuts deep. Most of the time, it's not words directed right at you. It's words that are towards said about you to other people, and you have no chance to even defend yourself. You have no chance to... Make a claim for yourself. You have nothing that you can do. And the reason I want to talk about words specifically is because Jesus in, in, uh, I believe it's Matthew chapter 10, I believe it's Matthew chapter 10, he sends out his disciples. It's a very similar story to what I have just read here. And he says, I'm sending you out in the midst of wolves. But he says, if they've called the master of the house Beelzebul, what more will they say to those of his own household? So they're calling Jesus the devil. They're calling him Beelzebul. What are they going to say about you? And then he says, have no fear of them. People are going to say stuff about you, especially the more and more that you want to follow Jesus. The more you decide to follow Jesus, there goes that train again. It's the T going down in downtown Boston. It's loud. The more you choose to follow Jesus, the more you're going to have to forfeit your reputation. Because most of what you and I call life... Oh, I feel this is life-giving. Most of what that means is you are seen as great and noble in the eyes of others. And it gives you life. And they affirm you. And they celebrate you. And they compliment you. And that's good. Don't get me wrong. That's good. It's good to be celebrated. It's good to be loved. It's good to be considered noble. It's good to be considered worthy. Those are all good. But if that was taken away, what life would you have? Would you still have a life? Like, What if... What if following Jesus costs you something? What if it costs you everything? And Jesus says you need to count the cost of discipleship. Um, In Luke chapter 14, Jesus warns, like, you need to count the cost because following me will eventually cost you some relationships. And he lists the most important relationships in your life. Wife, mother, Father, brother, sister—the most important relationships—and a lot of us choose, like we're we're only going to follow Jesus so far because we don't want to lose most of our relationships. And a lot of in this just seems this happens to people. The more they want to follow Jesus, the more they really want to stand on what they what has, he has said is true, the more it's going to cost you because most people don't actually want to. Follow Jesus to the fullness. Most of them want to say that that saying is too hard. I just won't. While others say you have the words of life. I'll follow you wherever you go. Make no mistake. Following Jesus with a full heart. It's going to cost you your reputation. It's probably going to cost you some relationships at some point. Not all of them. But like if Jesus was maligned. If Jesus was maligned. He told you you can expect to be maligned. It is a false notion that if you're a good enough Christian everybody will like you. He actually Jesus said woe to you to those who only have good things said about them. If you meet somebody and all they have is something good said about them, you might wonder if they're compromising somewhere. And this the reason I can say this with any authority is cuz I did this. I wanted to protect my reputation as a Christian more than anything to the point where I would even deny that some people like were real Christians. If I didn't like their, what they were doing, if they had convictions and they would tell people about them, they would be like, "Well, that's not really not what Christianity about. Christianity is about just accepting and love and ha da da." And there's no conviction of sin. There's nothing. And I would say that because I wanted to be seen affirmed and highly. I wanted to be. I wanted to be well affirmed in the eyes of men, whether they were in the church or not. I wanted everyone to think well of me, and I wasn't willing to count the cost, and I wasn't willing to follow Jesus all the way into the truth because there's things that Jesus says that are absolutely shocking and people just don't want to follow. I was one of them. And by grace, for those who desire, God will give you the grace to follow Jesus more and more and more and more to the point where sometimes it's going to cost you something because, again, in in Matthew chapter 10, he says, if they've called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? And if you want to know like where Jesus talks about the weight, of co- the weight of following him, the cost of following him to further and further, Matthew chapter 10, Luke chapter 9, Luke chapter 14, you can read through those passages, and that will show you what, what's the true cost of being a disciple of Jesus. There was a guy, he's a hero of the faith. His name's Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I read his, or I listened to his biography by Eric Metaxas in, I think it was early 2020 is when I listened to it. And it's a phenomenal, phenomenal biography. He was an amazing Christian man. He was an intense disciple of Jesus. He wrote a book. He was a theologian. He was also a pastor. He had written a book called The Cost of Discipleship, which is a very intense read, very good read. He also wrote a book on Christian community called Life Together. He was an amazing, an amazing man. The only reason you know Dietrich Bonhoeffer's name, the only reason I know it, and the only reason people have written books about him is because he died at the hands of Hitler. He was, uh, I believe he was hung to death. And what he had done early, so basic here's Dietrich Bonhoeffer's story. In the early 1930s, before um anyone really knew what the level of evil that was in Hitler Dietrich Bonhoeffer was very concerned with the alignment of the German church with the Nazi Socialist Party with Hitler's party he he did not like it he thought it was wrong and he he had prophet's eyes when he looked at Hitler and he said he basically called out the entire church and said what you are doing is evil you can't like you can't participate in this and they excommunicated him so he they just they're like you're done and so he went and he started a seminary underground seminary teaching people um about you know theology and following jesus and it was really intense they would read every psalm every single day or they would pray the psalms every single day all 150 of them but he wanted to form people in the way of jesus because so that they could withstand what was to come of the nazi party and he he saw it and he eventually wrestled with the the idea am i do I need to be part of assassinating Hitler? Cause I know what he's doing. He wrestled with that and he, he made a very hard decision. It cost him his life. Anyway, so he's, this guy is a hero of the faith and he wrote in his book, cost of discipleship. This is a, I just want to read you this quote um, from this. And then I have a quote, one more from the imitation of Christ. Cause I'm pretty sure Dietrich Bonhoeffer loved the imitation of Christ. The cross is laid on every Christian. The first cross, Christ suffering which every man must experience is the call to abandon the attachments of this world it is that dying of the old man which is the result of his encounter with Christ as we embark upon discipleship we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death we give over our lives to death thus it begins the cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life Man, that is a great line. Thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. He bids him come and die. Jesus is here to offer you life, but not necessarily to make your dreams come true. And there is a cost to following him. And I've got one more quote that I want to read to you. This is also from Imitation of Christ. Because it's good. You gotta. If you want to be a disciple, you have to count the cost. You have to count the cost. When Christ lived in the world, he too met with human contempt. His own intimate friends at the hour of his greatest need left him to face insult. Christ so ready to suffer and be despised, yet his followers have complaints to make. You have complaints to make. Christ with enemies and slanderers all about him. And do you expect to find nothing but friendship and kindness? The crown is for Endurance. Where is it going to come from if you have never met with difficulties? If you want to have everything your own way, you're no friend of Christ. You must hold out with him for love of him before you can share in his kingdom. If you want to follow Jesus, if you're going to stand firm on some convictions, it's going to cost you at some point. It's going to cost you, and it's okay because you're a disciple of Jesus and everything will be every he works all things together for good for those who follow him and you could re, and you could reconcile later and you, your standing firm on a conviction might just be the witness other people need to take their relationship with Jesus more seriously That's all I have for you today. Remember to subscribe on your favorite podcast app and on YouTube or head over to the org to subscribe to the newsletter and support the work. That's where you can dive deeper is on my website. You get exclusive content. If you didn't like this content, just pretend you didn't listen. That helps us out too. Until next time, I am Keaton Tucker, and this is the Institute of Men podcast.